Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Yeah, you know Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Are you ready to get down with some D&D? I know I am, and I am joined, as I am always joined, by the magnificent, marvelous, mad wizard Merwin. What is up, Sean? Okay, Chris, I, I've got that feeling again. I've got that strange feeling. I smell, it smells like old red box. Old red box? Yeah. Oh my god. Is, is, it also smells a little bit like BX, man. Is it Jason Hobbs? Is he in the house right now? Hey, everybody. How are you guys doing? Thanks for having me on. Oh, no problem. We we have the uh, illustrious fo- uh, host of Hobbs and Friends of the OSR, Jason Hobbs, with us tonight on Down with D&D. And we're going to talk about in a little bit what 5th edition D&D was trying to achieve and did it succeed. That is our bit of a round topic table for this evening. And I, um, I'm looking forward to talking about that. I think it's a, about time that we've had a, a long time now to kind of digest 5th edition, what the initial design goals were, and to see where it's come from that point of view. Uh, but before that, we should probably do some announcements. So, Sean, what's the first one we got going on? The first one is they are announcing that there will be a D&D reader, which is a digital medium by which you can get your D&D content. It will, will be available this fall for both iOS and Android, and it will give players and DMs alike the option to buy entire books in hyperlinked searchable digital form or just buy particular sections of those books for cheaper if you only wish for a small selection. So this fits yet another way that people have been calling for the D&D content to be in a digital format. Well, that's really cool. I'm, I'm sort of like glancing through this article as we're, as we're talking about it. And like, you can pick up the books, you can pick up specific parts of books, like you can get the bard for three bucks or whatever. That's kind of neat. I kind of dig it. Yep. So it's, it's doesn't fit with D and D beyond D and D beyond is its own animal. So this is a separate way that was obviously licensed out to a different company to bring uh, the books in a new digital format. Oh, Hobbs, what do you think about digital stuff these days? Uh, I think they're necessity, and uh, I'm surprised it took this long for uh, Watsy to do it. And I'm glad that they are. I don't know about the amount of money that they're talking because a lot of people already have them. Because you know, you want your PDF for free when you already buy another book. But at least it's something, so that's good. Yeah, this feels like more than a PDF, right? This feels like um, I mean, I like DNT Beyond for this too. It's like it's hyperlinked. There's ways to move around the the, the files. There's ways to like save your spells and folders and whatnot, so you don't have to keep searching for them. So it seems pretty neat. It seems like it's more than just a PDF. It seems like it's an actual digital platform for, uh, you know, playing your game at the table. That's the hope. So why do they need both? That's my question. Well, two different companies, um, D&D Beyond, they're supposed to be a local one. I have no idea why they need both. I don't know why they license to both people. That's a really good question, actually. I think there have been some complaints about the way D&D Beyond functions. This is more of a nook kind of app rather than a fully functional character builder kind of thing, which is mm-hmm. what D&D Beyond is. Yeah. And D&D Beyond's got some other bells and whistles with it, too. It's got a lot right. of web-based stuff going on with it. This It's not just local to your to your device, although I heard there's supposed to be a local thing to your device for D&D Beyond at some point. Yep. So with that D&D Beyond, you can, create, you can create your own monsters in the app, you know, in the program. Um, you can save tons of characters, make your own character classes, you know, do all, do all that. Whereas I believe this is just more of a straight digital reader. What were you saying, Hobbs? 
that it actually sounds good. It makes sense for them to do that for the people who don't necessarily want everything that D and D beyond is doing and still just to be able to, uh, you know, search your electronic file to get what you need quickly. Cause those are big books, you know? Oh yeah. They're huge. Totally huge. So that's good. I, I'm, I'm with y'all. I, I think that's a really cool thing that they got going on there. Uh, okay, let's move on to the next thing. So, uh, Sly Flourish, Mike Shea, he had an article talking about, uh, hard moves in Dungeons and Dragons. And the article basically goes over what a hard moves like, move looks like in D&D, the dangers of hard moves, uh, that can come up in your D&D games. And I thought that was an impressive section of this article because it really shows that Mike understands the concept of the hard move, which in my opinion is, it's supposed to be something that, uh, it doesn't, necessarily punish the players but sets them up to have bad things happen to them in a lot of ways i mean sometimes a hard move is punishing because that they usually come after you've set up your soft move i like where he's going with it though because he's like we're going to put players and characters in situations to let them try to be awesome and that's usually what my hard moves look like when i run any kind of power by the apocalypse game yep so just for those people who don't know what chris is talking about with the hard move in Dungeon World or the Apocalypse World games, a hard move is a move that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, Chris, because I've only played a few times, is the, the move that the game master takes when the, the player rolls a six minus. Uh, it can be, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can, they, they get to make a move often when a six minus is rolled. And usually that is a hard move, but sometimes it can be a soft move. So then the difference is like soft moves set up or indicate something bad about to happen and hard moves are usually the bad thing happening. So there you go. So in, in this case, it might be something where you might house rule as a DM. When a player rolls a one on a, on a skill check or an attack roll, something really bad or something funny, strange, or you know, changing the scene happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, that might be something that you might think of as a hard move if you use a rule like weapon breakage or something. Yep. And another way to think about it, too, is if uh, somebody in the skill check or exploration portion of your game when you're not using the the rigorous rules of like combat and whatnot, and you can even still push, push this sometimes into the rigorous rules of combat. When a roll is failed, you can make a move, a soft move or a hard move. Um, this is all pretty much deals with hard moves. So just uh, I, I think it's a great article. I think people should uh, check it out. Yeah. Hobbs, I know you're more of an old school guy that does with the emergent play of, uh, you know, random charts and whatnot. And usually once the dice get rolled, that's where it kind of goes. I don't know. Is it a little too hippy dippy for you? Uh, not really. I think it's, uh, I mean, that's why some people say Dungeon World, uh, has an OSR feel is because he's kind of codified some things that a lot of OSR GMs were already doing, which is, uh, maybe failing forward. This is the same kind of that. This is, you know, very similar to that. But they they call it hard moves, and then maybe you have a list of them instead of, you know, just playing it by the seat of your pants, like uh, which is what most OSR guys do. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's true. I mean, in my, in my experience now, I'm playing a bunch of OSR games here and there. Like I'm like, oh, they're playing this game exactly the same way that I play games most of the time. It's just um, I have some theories about how uh how the resolution of dice often often uh, play out uh and and how those games function. But that's a different conversation for a different time. <laughs> Awesome. They have to have me back. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Or you, maybe you could have me on Hobbs and Friends of the OSR. I've never All right. been. All right. Job security. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> uh, Sean, what did you, I think you wanted to say some thank yous. Yeah, I just wanted to give a thank you to all the people who are supporting third-party products, whether it be, you know, via one bookshelf or the DMs Guild or, or however you, you do it, um, or the Guild of that program if, if you've been buying those uh, products. Because, you know, it really means a lot to those creators out there. 
the slow release schedule that we're seeing with fifth edition D and D has worked really, really well for the health of the, the brand overall. I'm reading articles every day about people saying how sales are still increasing um, as new players come to the game or as people return to D&D you know, after whatever hiatus they've had. And the slow release schedule is really helping push that, that continuing growth. So the DMs Guild and those those third-party products are there for people who are unhappy with the slow release schedule and they want more and they want more. These third-party products may not be official, but there is still some great content out there that can fill whatever need that you have in your game. And so I appreciate all those people who are who are helping you know support those third-party products, whether it be buying them or reviewing them or creating them, because you're you know you're helping grow the hobby. So thank you. Fantastic. I uh, I like me some third-party products. I, I make some of them and I buy some of them. So that's pretty neat. I know Hobbs buys and makes some buys some of them too. So yeah, for sure. I was just going to say that uh, uh, for on behalf of the people that you're thanking, I think we would like to thank you and the Guild Adepts and the people that are writing those products right back because sometimes, uh, uh, specifically with this Tomb of Annihilation, where you know you add you specifically went out and tried to find spaces uh, within the the main book that came out and create something for people that might need it, like maybe something for first level characters in that tomb of annihilation. So uh, it was very fun. And I know that my group had a lot of fun playing a uh, return of the lizard King. So thank you, Sean. And I guess encoded designs in general. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. <laughs> I hope you at least tortured your players a little with it. Oh, mm-hmm. guaranteed. Excellent. <laughs> There's never a doubt about that. <laughs> Okay, let's get into our main topic for the night. So we're going to talk about what was 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons trying to achieve, and did it succeed? Sean, would you like to start us off? Sure. Um, I think we have to be honest with at least this much and say that D&D, while it's a hobby that we all love, is a business. And so 5th edition's main goal had to be to you know sell games, and try to create a game that would ensure the survival of D&D for another generation. And so they could get all this great licensing opportunity uh, out into the world. So they didn't want to lose that licensing opportunity. And so they needed to create a game that would be as popular as the brand. Uh, so secondarily, what they did was they tried to bring people back to fourth edition, or I'm sorry, to fifth edition who may have felt that fourth edition was not for them, as well as look for new players out there who had never played D and D or any RPGs. But those are really business considerations. So while I'm sure the, those, that was the higher level goal, uh, and that those goals did somehow inform the game design decisions, uh, it did not control the game design decisions because there was another process in place to help guide, uh, help guide those decisions. And that was the very public open play test. That's very true. Uh, I have a hypothesis and it really kind of falls right in line with yours, Sean. Like I always felt that the fifth edition of this game was trying to create a modular game set, which could be played in a variety of fashions to emulate previous editions of D and D sort of a game for everybody. And I, uh, I think that's what they attempted to do. And I think they were pretty close to being on the mark with that. Yeah. Uh, I, I think they stated that very clearly, uh, all of the interviews that I heard. And I was at quite a few conventions while the play test of D and D next was happening where at first, uh, the three that were in charge, uh, 
Rob Schwalb, Monty Cook, and help me out. Uh, who's the third? Uh, I've only worked with them a few times. Um, Cordell. Yeah, Bruce Cordell. Thank you. Um, <laughs> you know, they would do panels and they would, they would say over and over again, you know, we want to create a game that, that, brings the best of all the additions forward. And even after they remove themselves from the project and Mike Merles and, you know, the other people who are now at Wizards took over, they continued to say that. And I think there was almost, they, they emphasized that point so much that some people began to assume that there was actually going to be uh, different books. Like, oh, I love fourth edition, so I'm going to buy the book of 4e and i'm going to slide that into my game and make it and and i think they were expecting almost that level of modularity which of course did not happen uh although there are other ways to get that in uh but they wizards definitely kept a, an eye on the opinions of the players during that play test and they i'm sure they took all these lessons that they learned from the previous editions uh to to make fifth edition i mean i'd heard that a lot i I mean, honestly, for me, I hadn't uh, purchased D&D and played it uh, since second edition uh, until fifth edition. So um, I'm one of those people that, you know, they definitely went back far enough and made a game that would be interesting to people who, you know, had a better liking of older editions. Uh, but I would say there's even more to the modularity that Chris is referring to. It isn't only about the additions. It's also about... Uh, what they were trying to do for types of play, meaning uh, organized play versus uh, playing whatever you wanted at your house. Um, this game definitely feels more like that. Uh, Cause like second edition, I don't even think they had organized play. You know, they had maybe like some living uh, Greyhawk or living forgotten realms type stuff, but nothing compared to what they do now, which uh, you know, you're supposed to be able to take your characters from, all sorts of different ways. I've never done it personally. I'm always kind of fascinated by it. Um, but like I say, I've never really done it. Do you, do you guys agree with that or do you have any thoughts on that? I, I, I agree to a point. Um, the, the second edition and I think maybe even during first edition, uh, version of organized play was called Living City. And it was, uh, I think not, not really supported by the rules so much as just adapted to what the rules were. Um, but definitely after third edition started, that's when Living Greyhawk and all the other uh, organized play campaigns that came after um, were, you know, were started up. And they, I think, have definitely at least influenced the the creation of the rules slightly. Not totally, but some consideration has been in that. And the, you know, this is a topic I could talk about for hours and hours and hours. Um, <laughs> you know, what, what certain developers of the game actually, you know, how much they liked or disliked organized play, you know, some embraced it uh, and thought it was great and used it to make the game better. And some people just had a disdain for it and would like to have just done away with it completely. So, you know, there, there are those personal touches that individuals who created third, fourth, fifth edition had that definitely influenced the game a bit. But I, you're absolutely right in the sense that that modularity does reflect on different play styles and play types. What do you think, Chris? Uh, kind of just right there with everybody else's comments. I don't have anything else to add. Uh, I have, I'll have things to say when we start talking about how the game models or doesn't model the, uh, 
the previous editions of the game, but I mean, that's what D&D is doing these days. When I was going to say listening to you guys talk, because like I, I do, I listen to this show every Tuesday usually. I'm usually bugging you to uh, get it out, which is kind of interesting because, I mean, most people wouldn't consider me to be a big 5e player, but uh, you guys do a good job of making it entertaining. Um, and this concept about when you talk, when you, we, before you used to talk about some old rules and stuff that used to come out on our, on Earth Arcana and, uh, how, you know, you felt that they were made a certain way just for organized play or anytime that they add any rules addition. That's what kind of one of the main things that they're trying to make work is these classes to fit in with the organized play. But like if you're using them at home, you can do anything you want. Uh, and I, I don't know. I just really find it fascinating. I'm not sure if I'm articulating, uh, why I do. But uh, it seems very – and here you talk about writing modules for organized play versus not organized play. Uh, those are pretty interesting things that I don't really hear anybody else talk about. And uh, I think they did an excellent job with uh, 5e to allow people to do that. So that, that's one of the things that I really like. So thank you guys for mm-hmm. doing that. Well, oh, no problem. I, I mean, I think there's a whole different um, bent to the game when it comes to, to organized play. Like – they have documents saying like you can do these things and you can't do these things. I'm going to use feats, even though they're optional, because I actually don't like using feats in my game at home. Like it's not a thing for me. It's not, it's not something I enjoy. I like the game without them a lot more. Uh, but organized play has them, uh, and they have the whole like one book thing. Like you can use the core book and one other book as a resource for that mm-hmm. stuff. And I'm like, oh, that's that's interesting, right? Like you're now limiting how much craziness you can actually apply to your characters, like. I can totally dig on that. And I can totally see a bunch of people that are at home playing games, uh, not bothering with that at all because it's their game, right? Like, I mean, I ran the crazy spell jammer campaign that was pretty way out there. And that is nothing that is, that is way different from what I would do with an organized play game. Like I was just giving magic items out like crazy, but every single one of those magic items, you know, had a complete and total downside to them because that's the way that I wanted to run that game it was one of the themes of the game. Like here's some power, but it's got a super bad cost to it if you want to use it. But you don't see that kind of stuff in organized play because you have to be able to have it completely, um, not, I won't want to say vanilla, but you have to have it so that there's a baseline for everybody. Is that about right, Sean? Yeah. I mean, you have to have a standard set of rules that everyone agrees to. And so when you do that, you, by definition, it's like, it's what I like to call a self-selecting audience, right? You, you say these, this is what we're going to do. So therefore the people that like what you're going to do are the ones that end up coming to organized play. I think that some people here organize play and they take their experience back to living city or living Greyhawk or living forgotten realms or eccentric expeditions or, you know, fill in the blank with whatever uh, experience you're talking about. And they think that it's always that. And, Organized play has changed a lot over the years. You know, people now think organized play, at least the the preconception that I hear is they think it's you go to the con or you go to your game store and you sit down and it's all arguing about rules and it's all maps and minis and it's all bookkeeping. And that is actually far from the case at this point. Um, when I go to a big convention like Origins or Gen Con, most of the DMs prefer not to use a map and minis. Uh, most prefer theater of the mind. Most prefer not to, you know, get into these great rules debates and they'll try their best to push off anything like that till the end of the game so you can get, you know, the storytelling involved. And I think that has a lot to do with streaming and a lot of the great actual play podcasts and streams that are out there where it is more of a narrative game. And so 
you know, I don't think organized play is one thing, like maybe you've seen it as one thing in the past. Um, but there definitely has to be a, an overarching DM with, you know, with in bold and italics who sets the ground rules for how you create characters, you know, how you distribute treasure and, and that sort of thing. And so the rules have to fit within that framework. But beyond that, there, there doesn't have to be as, as much rigidity as there has been maybe in past editions. I'm with you there. Like I, I completely, I was actually just having this conversation the other day with Phil. I was uh, talking about how, how uh, Adventurers League is not what it, what people think it is anymore. Right. Like I was talking about how there's a whole spot in the, in the beginning, like the game master, the dungeon master has the ability to modify and make rulings on this session to the benefit of, of play, right? Yeah. Like to the fun of play. Uh, there are still some guidelines that people need to follow. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the game masters can only dungeon masters can only give out so much experience and so much treasure. They are limited in some cases. Mm -hmm. And, um, there, there's a thing that's the limit with the characters. Like you should have legal characters at your table. Right. And, but after that, like, it's like, well, let's have a good time and play a game. Right. Yeah. Ab yeah, absolutely. And, and that's been a big push to keep it like, like that. Uh, Jason, did you want to add anything or are you good? I, well, I actually had one more thing that I wanted to maybe ask you guys, cause I hear you often mention that you get a core book and one other book. So if you were doing that for uh tomb of annihilation, that would be the other book I'm assuming. So if someone wanted to play, uh, I don't know how to pronounce this. I guess I only read it. Aarakocra, you wouldn't allow that because there aren't any Aarakocra that came from, uh, Temple of Ele the Elemental Evil, Evil Apocalypse or whichever book that was, right? Is that true or? The, the, the plus one book can be any book. So, uh, the player's handbook plus one rule applies to the player and the player can choose that what that plus one book is. So you can go into Tomb of Annihilation with a character that was made using the player's handbook and the elemental evil player's guide. Really? So it's not the one book that the GM decides. Correct. Right. Oh, okay. Right. So you can go into, you know, you can go into Ravenloft playing your uh, deep gnome that you got from, you know, whatever other book, uh, but you can't play that deep gnome and then take spells from Tomb of Annihilation. Okay. That was something that wizards themselves said, when we design books, we're going to start designing these not to work all together in one big library, but one book and the player's handbook, we will test together to make sure there's nothing horribly broken, but we're not going to keep track of everything. So we suggest that all DMs, not just organized play, but all DMs use that rule. Okay, nice. Chris? No, that's it. I'm, I'm ready to move on. I think we should move on. All right, cool. Here we go. So now we're going to talk about some of the additions and how they relate to the, uh, the game that we have these today. So uh, let's talk about, uh, the first edition of D&D, &D, BX, uh, OD&D, whatever people want to call that stuff. Now, I have very few opinions on this stuff because I've played like three sessions, four sessions of these kinds of games. And uh, I, I know one thing. It doesn't feel like the couple – like fifth edition D&D &D doesn't feel like the sessions of BX that I've played. So uh, that's all I have to say about that. Uh, Jason, what do you have to feel about this? Because you've played a lot more of those games and you've played fifth edition. Um. 
Well, the first thing I would say is that to group the three, that the, those all together like you did is almost blasphemy in my schools, but. <laughs> it's completely blasphemy, but if I did, if I did them all individually, we would have been here all night. No, no, I, I, I agree. It's, I mean, and I don't really necessarily know. I think Sean is, is doing a way better job talking about the mechanics and, uh, the mechanisms, like you guys would say on Misdirected Mark, but I think it's more of a feel thing for me usually. I always talk rulings, not rules, as uh, the ma- the mantra for what I'm doing. And uh, in fifth edition, there are a lot of rules, and they're very cognizant of how all those rules interact with each other, which is what we were just talking about because they want to have rules for organized play. Uh, an interesting thing I've found is one of my friends, Paul Wolf, just recently wanted to play in the five E game, and all he had was the download. Uh, which is the basic set, you know, and it's that's very different compared to what the actual 5e book looks like. It's true. And I think it's way closer to uh, more of these original, this grouping you have pre-second edition, which I found very interesting. And then I told him like the stuff he could do, and it was just kind of really blew his mind uh, <laughs> because you're dropping on magnitudes of uh, complexity, really. Um, I'm not sure if I answered the question. <laughs> Go ahead, Sean. Oh. Yeah, I think you actually hit the nail right on the head. I think a lot of it has to do with feel. And I think a lot of, you know, first edition or uh, OD&D or, or, you know, basic expert gamers um, came back to 5e to find that it does have a, a lot of that feel, especially at lower levels, um, because the spell system, while slightly changed with things like cantrips, is very similar to, to first edition. You know, you've got your wish. You've got your wish spell that you can cast and do incredible things. You know, at, at lower levels, wizards are a little bit uh, less powerful than the barbarian or the fighter. Uh, but then at higher levels, you know, that sort of flips the script a little bit, and and that's very recognizable from from at least in my experiences with first edition. Um, you know, we, when I played first edition, we never used maps. We would sometimes pull minis out and put them on the table, but just to show general positioning and not to, to show, you know, any sort of movement. And, you know, that's starting to make a return as, as we're seeing in a lot of, uh, live streamed games. So I think the, the spirit of the game over the, let's call it the tyranny of mechanics, uh, is, is starting to show through. Uh, with fifth edition more, and that harkens back for me to to those first edition AD and D days. The funny thing is, is online I still use. I mean, Chris played in my online BX game, and it's all uh, maps and minis and use. And there's, I mean, I don't know how closely I guess if it feels like fourth edition because I've never played fourth edition uh, online. All I played was a play by post. But uh, what do you think, Chris? I mean, do you think that though those BX games with maps and miniatures, does that make it more three or four E because you're using those? Because my whole life we've used miniatures and I've been playing since uh, Holmes. So, uh, no, because the characters are complete scrubs compared to first level characters in third edition and fourth edition and fifth edition <laughs> <laughs> and fifth edition. Like, like walking around in those dungeons, it was cool too because you had the dynamic lighting and everything. But it felt like we were actually exploring a dungeon. We didn't know it was around the next corner, and if we opened up a door, we were going to die—a terrible, horrible death. And and it was just going to be bad. And when we ran into stuff, we we're like, should we really fight this or should we just run away? Like that is the feel of that game, and it, it has a lot to do with the characters and, and what they can and can't do. Which, like, I could cast like two spells, and that was. 
<laughs> like I just might as well. I, I was I was I was having fun carrying torches to make sure that we had light so we could see what was trying to murder us. Like that was like my function in the party most of the time. But that that is the kind of play that we were talking about, right? Like I mean, it's perfectly fine. It was fun. I had a good time. Yeah, I've I've found fifth edition at at least at the lowest levels, so like first and second level, to to maybe not be as gritty as first and second edition or basic, but much grittier than. 3e and 4e uh-huh i agree uh, it's it's very very easy to kill a first or second level character and i'm not talking about knock unconscious i mean kill yep. um without really trying to yeah hard. with goblins um, right you're not you don't have exactly. to overpower them with something much more powerful oh something yeah powerful no just can kill them yep couple three goblins with five first level characters that can they can do some damage mm-hmm. Yeah, so my, uh, I guess from my BX experience and, and a couple other like OSR styled games I've played, uh, the, the, the lower levels of D&D feel like that, right? Like I'm, I'm with you both on that one. Like the, they just do. Yeah, that's awesome. Are we ready to talk about second edition now? Sure. Let's do it. Cool. So second edition, Sean, you want to start first? Yeah. Uh, second edition is the edition I played least. I played it when it first came out, but I, I fell out of favor before all the kits and all the expansion books came out. So really what I'm seeing from second edition is kind of a carryover of the recognition that there are many different play styles um, and different settings and, and, you know, different uh, things that need to be supported because you have such a diverse interest from your players. So, you know, I'm seeing Ravenloft. I'm seeing all of those, uh, you know, we're seeing a, the unearthed arcana articles to show Eberron, uh, some Eberron rules, things like that that have come out to say to the players, yes, we understand that you all have different uh, loves, different settings, different styles, and this game will support them. And I think second edition did a great job with showing that with the diversity of settings and all the different books that came out. Mm-hmm. I'm going to toss out, a, I've, I just recently had the uh, opportunity to, to uh, interview Frank Menser. And one thing he said to me kind of fits in with this idea in it's, um, <laughs> it's basically this idea that back in the day, like pre second edition and pre any of this, it never really felt like the people who were writing or controlling TSR cared what any of the people said they were, they were, they were more like, okay, this is what, how it is. And this is what it's going to be. Uh, but 5e obviously is different than that. And second edition was starting to get to that where we could actually interact with them, like you said, so we could ask for different things and then they could play more to their audience. And, uh, and 5e has done a really, really, really good job of that, uh, through how easy it is to talk to. You can just talk to Mike Merles on Twitter or whatever, and he's got a possibility to answer any of those guys will. And, uh, and that's exactly what Frank said. He go, we always listened, uh, but it took a lot longer. <laughs> <laughs> to get the mail back then, right? Uh, than it does now because it's like instantaneous gratification with that situation. Sorry, Chris, go ahead. No, I didn't say anything. I was, I was, I was perfectly fine just waiting. Um, I thought it was like a, a cool point. Yeah. So my opinion is I think that this version of the game resembles second edition more than any other edition. Uh, it's just, it's probably just because of the way that I used to play second edition. Like, Theater of the mind was a thing that I did a lot of. Uh, we, or we have very, very loose maps. Uh, there were character options in those books, but not tons of them. Uh, and there were the kit books and things like that that existed everywhere and that kind of got crazy. 
But uh, there was also the thing where there were some classes that were harder to play than others or there were more complex than others, like wizards were more complex than fighters. They just were. Um, there was a lot of fiddly rules and things like that, too, like weapon speed, I think, was still around and uh, Thaco was still a thing. And there's nothing wrong with Thaco. I'm pretty OK with Thaco. But uh, like those games felt samey to me, like fifth edition and second edition, they felt the same. The, there's some differences in fifth edition because it's got some third and fourth stuff in there and some uh, story game stuff in it, too, in a lot of ways. But that's the one that it reminds me of the most when I when I play fifth edition. I mean, that's all I have to say about that. I don't know if anybody has any comments on, on my comments. Uh, I mean, no, I think you're jump. right on. No, I was just going to nod vigorously in agreement. <laughs> I, I would agree with you, but I think really you could play Theater of the Mind or Loose Maps uh, with any editions uh, probably before they really started to force that with fourth edition, obviously. Um, uh, I kind of wrote in our notes here that uh, to me, second edition was the same as first edition after uh, – they started with skills because this is the beginning of the skills uh, in Dungeons and Dragons, really. And um, the way that they have done skills in fifth edition has actually is a better mechanic for sure than we had back then with non-weapon proficiencies and weapon proficiencies. And uh, they people complain about feats, but in its own way, uh, even just the core book of second ed- edition when you were doing that stuff was uh, could be kind of a pain in the <laughs> kind of a pain. We'll say. Um, but it does have that feeling to it of uh, when it started. I only played the, with the core books of second edition, so uh, it's probably one of my favorites just because mm-hmm. of that. I didn't have the the most of the things that people say bad about second edition is the concepts that it got overkitted and all the extra stuff where you had way too many uh, splat books. Well, I never did any of that. So to me, uh, with just core books, and if you just say core books with fifth edition, uh, they do they do have a very similar feel. I would completely agree. Mm-hmm. I completely agree with that. Yep. All right, let's talk about third edition. Uh, I want to start. So I think that fifth edition has enough rules and options to kit out characters, and that makes it pretty easy to uh, emulate a lot of what third edition was doing in fifth edition. Like, that is where I think those two games are super similar. Also, there's enough rules in there for moving around uh, characters on a map that it feels a lot like the third edition rule set in a lot of ways to me. So... um with uh, with your action economy and things like that, even more so than fourth edition. We'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, those are those are the places that I think that the games are are very similar. Uh, what about you, Sean? All right, this is where I'm going to say uh, this is where I'm going to say controversial things. And so here we go. Are you ready? Sure. Hit Absolutely. Me. So third edition was when D and D became a game that was a good mechanical game. Um. And so I'm not saying that first and second edition and all the previous editions weren't good games. Can we say, I mean, I, I get what you're saying with good. Can we say a tight mechanical game? Like the rules all work together. Elegant is the really the word I'm looking for. Uh, um, much easier for anyone to grasp. Because trying to teach people to play first and second edition could be a bear. Yeah. And so when I, I wrote in the notes, the nightmare of Thacko. <laughs> and, and so I, I could tell Jason had something to say about that. <laughs> and I don't mean nightmare in that it was hard to use. I mean nightmare in the sense where there was a much easier way to do the same thing and make it easier for people to understand. So we didn't have to deal with ACs that went be- were better as they got lower until you had negative 10. Um, you know, saving throws that were in these weird little categories that really didn't match 
anything else on the character sheet well. You know, things like that. So 5e, I think, feels in spirit like 1e or 2e, but the guts of it are still third edition all the way, you know, just in terms of the way the ability scores work where, you know, it's 10 or 11 is plus zero, uh, 12 or 13 is plus one, you know, all those things, all those changes that were made carried through because they were good, elegant, mechanical uh, ways to make the game more, more easy to teach and more smooth to run. Uh, honestly, Sean, it's not going to be controversial with me because I stopped playing D and D in first, second edition because of the arbitrary little mini games that the whole system and subsystems felt like. They didn't feel like they were the same game. You were all over the place, right. and there really wasn't a great reason for any of it. Uh, why? Why couldn't sleep spells affect elves? Why do I have to do like you say the saving throws? Where do those even fit into anything? And why can't my abilities affect them? All those things I completely right. agree with. And I stopped playing Dungeons and Dragons because of it and went to Hero System, believe it or not. So, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know if that's an improvement, Jason. Uh, like- <laughs> well, it is because the, the game fundamentally was built on blocks, building blocks that were very on, on the, you know, the foundation of that game. And then you moved up from there. Whereas the building blocks of Dungeons and Dragons in first and second edition are all over the place. They don't, they're not, a, it's not a cohesive game system. I would actually agree with that completely. Like, that's a very good point. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm learning now that third edition would actually have been a better game for me. And I was excited about it when it first came out. But reading the rules, I was like, I don't know what the heck this even is. And I never played it. I bought all three core books and I've never played uh, third or fourth mm-hmm. edition uh, sitting around a table or online, only in a play by post situation where it really has nothing to do with the game mechanics anyway. That's true. Uh, yeah. Something about. Yeah. And, 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 yeah, that's an important point to make too. Is is that while the game itself, the rules were were more elegant, there was still enough complication that it could be a bear to learn. Um, the the one of the problems with the earlier editions was it was hard to sit down and read the rule book and learn and know how to play the game. You were better off going to someone's table and, and having them teach you. And even then you might have to play 10 times to know what your first level character could do and why all the numbers, well, all the numbers met. With third edition, it was kind of easier to teach the rules, but it was almost as hard to make a character because of all the, you know, the detailed number, you know, I, you have this many points in this skill. So therefore you have a plus two here and a plus two here. And while the rules were elegant, it was almost as complicated in practice as the earlier games were. Yeah. I, uh, and when you're talking about, uh, Thaco, uh, the first thing I'll mention is Chris said Thaco, you said Thaco, and I say Thaco. So that's how <laughs> difficult that game mechanic is. <laughs> no one even pronounces right, it the exactly. same way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, some other cool things about third edition that is strongly shows the mechanisms from 5e that they kept it. Uh, the concept of all the character classes progressing at the same time, you know, that's fixed so many issues with multi-classing and uh, how you're getting different abilities from different classes and all that. It seems like it's so strong. And then you can see just because of all the other games that came out using uh, the third edition engine, you know, uh, the modern and all those things that came out reading them now. I'm like, Oh, it is way more elegant. It's like, I didn't give it enough because I don't know if it was written poorly or what, but it was like you say, very difficult to understand and teach yourself. Mm-hmm. So yeah, those things are awesome that, that 5e kept those. I agree. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, uh, let's talk about fourth edition now then. Uh, last one for the night. Sean, you want to start? Sure. I think fourth edition was, in terms of elegant game mechanics, the best edition. I agree. And that's not the same thing as saying it was a better game. That's true. Um, because there's so much more goes into what a D&D game is. Um, but what fifth edition brought forward then was the, uh, the idea of a simpler skill set with third. You got some with second, but with third you had the big long list where you had you know, rope use and you know, butt wiping as a skill, uh, and, th- uh, and synergy bonuses down. and yeah, uh, exactly all that. So this still made skills a thing, but it, it, it's much easier to handle. Fourth edition introduced healing surges, which were kind of brought forth a bit with hit dice, letting you heal yourself without the need for, uh, magic to, to do so. Which I love that mechanic, um, by the way. Yeah. Um, everybody raved in fifth edition about the advantage um, ability where you get to roll two dice instead of one or disadvantage. Uh, that is kind of a, a leftover from fourth edition's combat advantage where they tried to simplify that term to mean you get a plus two for the following list of things. Mm-hmm. So that eliminated the plus two if the creature's kneeling and you're standing is an additional plus two, plus you're on higher ground, so that's plus two. You know, it, it f- focused all of that down onto one simple plus two to cover this wide range of advantages, and that slowly became, uh, over the iterations of D&D Next, just simple advantage with the extra die, so that's good. And it was pretty simple to create a fourth edition character, and I think with fifth edition they really tried to keep that... Uh, in play to draw in new players without the need for someone to teach you over several sessions what your character is and what your character can do. Jason, what about you? To me, I mean, it obviously kept some of these things. Like I've said, I've never actually played fourth edition in face-to-face or even like a real-time game. So uh, I'm not a very good person to talk about this. But one thing that I did notice is that loss of uh, niche or niche protection uh, that I think really kind of started when you start doing healing surges and everyone can do it and not just the cleric. It fixes the cleric, but at the same time, it removes some of the, uh, how differ, the differentiation between the classes were in earlier editions. And fifth edition is obviously doing that too, because every class has its subclasses, which just gives it a little more of other classes. Um, so I say that, that has, if it came from that, then it did. And I mean, obviously they're going to draw some things that some people don't agree with and some things that they do. I wrote saving throws here, but for, apparently Sean knows way more than me about it because they already, they already fixed the saving throws in third edition, right? So, uh, let's ignore that. Well, I, I like the way fifth edition does saving throws, which is actually different than every okay. other edition I've seen. It really is. Um, uh, third edition was you have, um, three that you, you get to, to, uh, Save. I, I, I'm, 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 reflex, will, and, uh, right. And, and constitution. Oh, the crawl classic right. saving? Fortitude. Yeah, yep. fortitude. Thank For, you. It's fortitude. Yep. And I think third and fourth were very similar along those lines. What fifth edition did, which I think is brilliant, is they just put a saving throw for each of your abilities. Yep. Super smart. So if you uh, get hit by a fireball, you make a dexterity save. Uh-huh. If you are being pushed by something, you make a strength save. If something is trying to take over your will, you make a charisma save. If something is trying to uh, hold your 
um, you know, whole person or, or something like that that affects your mind, you make a wisdom save. Uh, so it's, it just, it fits in nicely with the things that are already there. It really does. Um, I agree. So <laughs> strange enough, fourth edition before fifth edition, uh, was my favorite version of Dungeons and Dragons. It's like, I love that game a lot. Uh, but I feel like they just ripped out a lot of 4E from what is considered 5E right now. Uh, when you play the map and minis game with the third, with the fifth edition, I feel like it plays more like third than fourth. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Like, I think the game plays just fine. Uh, but that, that's my opinion. Like, I think they just took a lot of the stuff away. I mean, one of my favorite things, and, and you can still get a diffuse feats, but one of my favorite things from fourth edition was marking, right? Like, mm-hmm. made tanks feel like tanks, right? Like, you would actually hold somebody in place. Uh, there's not so much of that anymore in the game, which makes me a little sad if you want to play that kind of game. So, um, that, that is, that is some of the things. I mean, some of that role stuff is still there. You can see it now. Like, now that we know it exists and we're, we're aware of it from a design perspective, like, oh yeah, you can see that there are strikers and there are controllers and there are this, that, and the other thing. But it seems like everybody can do a little bit of that stuff now. So, uh, I mean, it's not like a design premise that they were like really shooting for pretty hard. But that's how I feel about it. Anybody want to argue with me or comment with me or discuss with me? I think you'd say in four, fourth edition, they had those abilities to actually shift people around on the map. It was part of the rules. It was oh, abilities yeah. they had where that doesn't really exist that much anymore. A little bit with like shoving and, and pulling people, but it wasn't specific five foot move. I mean, and, and just, okay, you move that person one thing. So that like you I agree with you. That's why it would feel like an earlier edition compared to fourth edition for sure. And that really comes back to trying to make 5EA more a more narrative game or a game that you can play more narratively because all of those push five feet and slide five feet while they're cool. If you're playing a game where your exact positioning can mean life or death, when you're playing it in terms of a cinematic story driven game, that really doesn't mean all that much. It's, it's not life or death. If Conan hits somebody and the person moves back five feet. Um, so, you know, it's, it it shows that there is a narrative element to the game that they are trying to keep and to uh emphasize yeah emphasize thank you that's a good word chris i'm glad glad you thought of it <laughs> no problem yeah if there's something they're trying to do with the game you can see it most in character generation right so uh because that's what people are going to do the most because there's always more players than there are gms so when you add the backgrounds and uh, all of those options to the characters which as far as i know really never existed all that much before, then you can see that narration and the emphasis uh, on that uh, was a big deal for them in fifth edition. And I mean, Mm -hmm. they even got consultants from the OSR really to help them out. They probably picked two of the most polarizing individuals to to choose as consultants, but in that, in its own way, that was brilliant too. I don't know. Yeah, that's a great point. All all of the the traits and the flaws and the, you know, the backgrounds and, and the things that grant you inspiration if you play to your character were pretty brand new and, you know, I think pretty well received by most players. All right. Well, that is our discussion on the different versions of the game. Um, I guess the last question that I have to ask is, do we think from what we've just discussed that D and D fifth edition has achieved what it was setting out to do? Uh, I'll start with you, Sean. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, even, I think even if it hadn't, 
reach the popularity that it's reached and continues to reach, uh, it would have fulfilled those goals of bringing some of the best parts of each of the editions forward. But with the way that it's taken off you know, on the business side of things and on the sales side of things, uh, I think it is a, a success in any way that you want to cut it. What about you, Jason? I would say I was skeptical from the people I talked to about how much they said there would be modularity in the game. And I had no idea how they could possibly achieve what their goals were. Um, but I would have to say that they did. I mean, I know tons of people that play 5e from all walks of role playing. And, uh, some people would argue with this, but I actually think it's a pretty good gateway game into RPGs in general. Because, I mean, first of all, look at the age that is playing 5e. I mean, there's a lot of young people, way more young people playing 5e than any other role playing game in existence. A lot of that has to do with marketing, but, it still has to be a game system capable of doing that. And I think that speaks to uh, uh, the modularity aspect of it because there's things that you can drop out of the game without uh, affecting the game overall very much. So uh, that, that's pretty good. So, yes, A-plus a on uh, achieving their goals. I think the game is actually doing exactly what it set out to do. Bring a bunch of people back to the game, create a brand that is recognizable across the world and especially the United States and Canada and places where there's money that can be used to buy these things and where entertainment's a big deal and Hasbro has finally turned this thing into something that will actually be able to make money in, in a bunch of other places. Uh, I think that's what they were intending to do. I thought I think they've succeeded at it quite well, uh, using nostalgia as one of the primary uh, motivators in that. So uh, mm -hmm. that's how I feel about the situation. And we're running out of time because I actually have to go soon. So I suppose we should get out of here. So Everyone, thank you so much for listening. A few Patreon shoutouts real quick. Danny Silva, Space Rhino, I hope you found the space hamster of your dreams. Jeff Stevens, MT Black, Cindy Moore, Michael Bauman, John Just John, and Michael J. Benensky. Thank you so much for being our patrons. And speaking of patrons, if you'd like to be a patron of Download D&D, you can click on the link to our Patreon page on the website, and for $2 a month, you can get yourself a shoutout. Or for $5 a month, you not only get one of these shout-outs, but you also get our pre-production show notes. And we try to give our patrons little extras on an every-other-week schedule. If you can't help us monetarily, but you want to give us a boost, you can do so with an iTunes review, or giving us a review anywhere, or just pimping us out by retweeting us, re-sharing us on Facebook, just talking about us in general. It would be great. Yeah, we, we love hearing from you and what we can do better, or what you like to hear, so give us that uh, information. And hey, Chris, where can we find you on the internet? Well, you can catch me uh, at Down with DD or at The Light 101 or at Misdirected, eh, at Misdirected Mark, word scramble, at Misdirected Mark on the Twitter. So you can also just go to the Down with DAT, uh, Advantage to Insight and Down with DD G Plus community and catch us there. Uh, Jason, where can we find you on the internet? Uh, G Plus is where you can always find me, Jason Hobbs, or on the Twitter at Hobbs Indeed. Uh, I do have the show called, you know, Hobbs and Friends of the OSR that has its own Twitter feed. OSR and Hobbs. Is that the right one? Yes, or, that's the right <laughs> I one. I got lost for a second. <laughs> uh, Sorry, Sean, where, Sean, where can we find you on the internet? Uh, not where you can find Jason, I'll tell <laughs> yeah, you that. right? Absolutely. Uh, you, could, you can find me at Sean Merwin or at Down With D&D. And Chris, did you know that Down With D&D is a misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Design? Uh, I, in fact, did. I, in fact, did. And with this, uh, Jason, you listened to the show. What are we going to do now? I thought we'd go and kill some Wilden and Gecko lizard men. You're Down With D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're Down With D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're Down With D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's Down With D&D? You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. 
I'm done with DMZ. We done with DMZ.